Hello, I'm Harry Glorickian, and this is The Harry Glorickian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. If you follow tech news, you know there have been a lot of stories over the last few months about AI chatbots like ChatGPT that can respond to your questions with incredibly convincing and well-written answers. These so-called large language models can tell you how to build a treehouse, how to bake a cake, or how to sleep better, and even write fake Bible verses about why it's a bad idea to put peanut butter sandwiches into a VCR. But notice the word large. The new generation of chatbots is effective in part because they have so much training data to work with. Behind the scenes, these models have sifted through hundreds of billions of pieces of data, basically the entire internet, including all of Wikipedia and thousands of published books, to see what words and phrases tend to occur together. So when you ask one of these large language models a question, it predicts the most likely answer based on a huge network of statistical associations. Now imagine that a chatbot came along that could learn how to generate convincing text responses by studying, say, only 18 sentences. Well, something like that is what my guest Raphael Townsend has accomplished for the world of structural biology. Townsend is the founder and CEO of Atomic AI, which is commercializing a discovery he made while earning his PhD at Stanford. He built a deep learning model to tackle the hard problem of predicting the 3D structures of RNA molecules. RNA has been in the news a lot lately too, in part because some of the vaccines that helped us beat back the coronavirus pandemic were made from messenger RNA, a form of the molecule that instructs cells how to build proteins, in that case, antibodies to the virus. But RNA has many other functions in the body, and if we knew how to modulate those functions, it could open up a whole new realm of medical treatments. But to do that, we need to know how each type of RNA is structured, so we can then design small molecule drugs that will attach to those structures. Just as a reminder, RNA is like DNA in that it's made up of a sequence of nucleotides, An RNA with a known nucleotide sequence can take many different possible shapes. And that's the hard problem. Townsend's deep learning model was designed to evaluate a proposed structure for an RNA molecule with a known nucleotide sequence and predict whether that proposed structure would turn out to be correct in nature. And it turned out it could do that with extremely high accuracy so accurate that the discovery got published on the cover of Science Magazine back in 2021. And what's remarkable is that Townsend's model required so little training data. It started off with just 18 examples of RNAs with known structures. So in a way, it was using the power of small data together with a bit of physics rather than the big data we usually talk about here on the show. Now, Atomic AI is building on that original model to create an engine for discovering new small molecule drugs that could interrupt any disease where RNA is a player, which is a lot of diseases. Townsend agreed to come on the show to tell us about it. Here's our full interview. Raphael, welcome to the show. Ah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Harry. 
Yeah, so, well, first of all, like, super congratulations on your funding news. I mean, I know you guys just announced on January 25th that you guys raised $35 million in a Series A financing on top of the previous $7 million in seed funding, right? That is, that's no, uh, no small feat. Like, Thanks. for those people that are listening, can you, got, can you explain in broad terms what the company's mission is and what's so special about your technology approach? Yeah. Um, at a high level, we really see atomic AI as sort of at the intersection of two of the largest breakthroughs of the last decade. I think everyone's heard of the RNA revolution with the mRNA vaccines, things like that, but also the AI sort of revolution with all these new sort of cutting edge AI technologies. And really we see Atomic as operating at the intersection of these two, starting with my own work, which, uh, you know, from my PhD essentially, which ended up actually featured on the cover of Science, to really create this new field of RNA drug discovery, right? With this cutting edge combination of RNA biology and uh, AI technologies. We're gonna come back to this a lot in, in, in sort of my, the way that I'm thinking about approaching this, but. How does, you know, Atomic deliver on the vision you spelled out in the 2021 science paper? Right. So there's been this sort of large amount of progress in AI specifically for structural biology, which is sort of the area of biology which has to do with the shape of molecules. And really one of the central mantras of structural biology is that structure determines function, right? The shapes of things determine what they do, which is really almost too obvious in some ways, right? Like the shape of a bike is important to the fact that it can transport you around. <laughs> right. If the wheels were in the wrong place, right, it wouldn't do a very good job of that. Um, and so very similarly, by understanding the shapes of the molecules, you can understand what they do and then also understand when things go wrong and then potentially intelligently design medicines to fix those things. And the progress on the AI side of things is that you can take um, any sort of molecule and really pre predict their shape overall, uh, which is a process that typically can take months or years if doable at all, and you're bringing that down to seconds. So, you know, I, I think the story of Atomic would make a lot of sense to listeners if we can talk a little bit about your personal journey, how the science paper got published and how the company came together. I mean, along the way, we should talk about, obviously, the science of RNA. And all of that will help us set up, like, how you are, you know, developing a drug discovery business. So first off, can you tell me the story of what you studied in grad school and how you got interested in machine learning to predict molecular structure? Because if I understand or have done my homework correctly, right? You were a PhD student in the laboratory of Stanford professor Ron Dror, who is a computer scientist and not a biologist, if that's right. Yeah, I would describe him sort of as a computational structural biologist, at least somewhat. I would say he has some, you know, he's definitely has very strong sort of biology knowledge, but from a very a computational standpoint. Um, okay. To give you a little bit of background as to, you know, 
how we ended up here. Uh, there's a long version and a short version, so I'll try and <laughs> stick with the short version. Okay. Um, I actually started my PhD in the artificial intelligence laboratory at Stanford, working on computer vision, actually, working on 3D vision, self-driving cars, things like that. Um, and really, there was sort of this realization that I came to that there was a lot of people that were trained very similarly to myself working on the same problems. Um, and I realized that this tool that is AI could potentially have impact in much broader, in a much broader sense. And so maybe a simple way of describing this, I kind of had this hammer AI, right, in some ways, and I'm going around looking for an area that is relatively neglected, right, in some sense, in terms of not many people working in that space, but that was very high impact. And so there's this rotation program at Stanford where you can rotate through different labs. And I essentially, you know, rotated through Ron's lab, did no AI, and was just trying to understand the space as best as possible. Um, and after that rotation, I realized, hey, this is actually seems like a very good fit. There's not many people working in structural biology plus AI. I feel like there's a few in the world at the time. Um, but if you can realize that you can really unlock a lot of new potential in drug discovery. And, you know, to make a long story short, then I had a seven year PhD where I had to learn a lot of structural biology, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, but that actually ended up being quite successful at the end of the day, um, in, in leading to, you know, this work predicting the structure of RNA, you know, using these, you know, cutting edge AI methods. And Overall, you know, in computer science, it's actually fairly common to go straight from a PhD to a faculty position from there. And so, you know, based on the success, at first, that's the route I thought I was going to go. Um, but I started writing these grants around using this technology, and two things became very clear. The first one was that there was a large commercial opportunity around, you know, finding the shapes of these RNA molecules. And I realize I've only described that at a high level so far, so definitely happy to dig into that specifically. And the second was really that you needed to scale the amount of data that you were collecting to train these AI models to a level that would be relatively inaccessible in an academic context. And so through those sort of two key realizations, essentially Atomic was born about uh, two years ago. And maybe I'll cut it off there for a second, uh, but uh, that's a lot of the genesis of Atomic. Actually. Yeah, I'm well, but it's interesting. I mean, you use the word rotation when you said it, and yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, ARAS, which, you know, the, the, <laughs> the acronym you give it, right? But you developed yeah. this model called ARES, A-R-E-S, if I remember correctly, for Atomic yes. Rotational Equivalent Scorer. Um, yes. And we come up with so many good acronyms in our world. But, uh, and it turns out that it really performed incredibly well at predicting yes. whether a predicted RNA structure was true to sort of real world data. In other words, much better than previous method. I mean, was that a surprise when you did this the first time? Yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> You know, to dive a little bit more into that PhD, I actually started working on proteins and protein interactions. Um, but uh, the whole dream was really training machine learning methods on molecular structure, systems of atoms, or something like that. Right. Uh, Ron, my advisor, actually gave me a plaque at the end of the at the end of my PhD that says "Atoms are everywhere." It's actually 
it's blurred out, but it's actually sitting behind me right now. Um, but the fundamental idea is proteins, you know, RNA, DNA, you know, carbohydrates, et cetera, they're all made of atoms at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So if you can design the right machine learning methods to work on systems of atoms, that should be fairly generalizable to new kinds of molecules. And so once we had our initial success on proteins, I, you know, essentially we then sort of approached, you know, this group at Stanford Riju Das that were experts um, in RNA structure and said, hey, we've got these methods that work well in proteins, let's try them on RNA. And that worked amazingly well almost immediately. Um, and it was just very exciting at the time and really sort of highlighted to me like how neglected in some ways this area was from a machine learning standpoint. Like if you could get that kind of amazing result so quickly, you know, who knows what else is out there essentially. Right. But, but let's take one step back. Right. So, you know, try delving into this. It, it, when I was looking at it, right. If you just think about it objectively, it sort of seemed counterintuitive and unreasonable since most of the successful algorithms in the world of deep learning are trained on trained on you know huge amounts of data all right and by the way those are the kind of machine learning we usually talk about here on the show right where the role of big data and medicine is is sort of one of our big major themes but but the results you got in the science paper were based on just 18 examples of known rna structure right at what point did you know that this was something that you could commercialize, apply to drug discovery, right? And the science paper only came out in like August in 2021. So it wasn't that long ago. So how do you right. think about those two things of small data, right, in, in some sense versus the large data? And how did you come to the epiphany that, while wow, we can actually do something with this and make money. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's two components to that. So the small data versus large data, right? Um, you know, I think a lot of the key in the Aries example specifically was that we had to very intelligently design the machine learning algorithm to be data efficient specifically, that it was able to sort of almost be aware of some of the laws of physics that drive, you know, molecular structure. Um, in particular, you mentioned the rotation side of things, right? Um, if you rotate your entire molecule, right, it's still the same molecule at the end of the day. And more traditional machine learning algorithms essentially are unable to encode that directly. It kind of has to learn this, the thing separately in every different orientation. Um, and so by building in this notion of rotational invariance or really equivariance, which is a slightly related concept to all of that, we're able to be much more efficient and work off of a much smaller data set, right? Don't get me wrong, additional data can almost always be helpful. But in this case, you know, getting even a single RNA structure can take months, right? And so you don't really have the luxury of collecting uh, very large amounts of it, unless you're willing to spend a lot of time and money <laughs> to really an absurd scale. Um, so, I'm, you know, hopefully I got this right, but if one of the big strengths of Aries was that it can predict whether a given molecule structure is accurate based on 
only a few examples of known structures. And it doesn't yes. matter what kinds of structures. In fact, if my understanding is correct, it doesn't need to know anything about what types of molecule it's modeling. It just needs to know where each atom is in a 3D space and what element each one represents. And first I should ask you, did I even get that right? Yes, that is that is 100% uh, correct. <laughs> okay, good. Really, 3D space and what kind of atom, because at the end of the day, you could almost rederive everything else from that, right? If you knew where all the atoms were, you could back out which ones were bonded together, you know, what, you know, elements are, you know, what bases those are comprised of, et cetera. And so that's why, you know, a very similar system could be used on RNA or on proteins or on anything else. Right? So um, that leads me to the question, why RNA and why not proteins? I think that the protein space is very interesting as well. Um, in many ways. However, you know, we specifically identified RNA as much more neglected from this standpoint. Again, I think that's a concept that comes back fairly often. You know, the number of companies out there working on AI for proteins, such as like, you know, designing antibodies or doing, you know, AI drug discovery of small molecules to bind proteins, there's a fair number of them at this point. And while that's very exciting work, if you look at the number of companies doing AI for RNA structure, you know, it's very limited. I mean, you might argue that to the best of our knowledge, we're the only one today. I don't think that's going to be the case for much longer, but uh, it's a very interesting position to be in. Okay, now let's talk for a minute about what specific types of RNA you're interested in, right? Because, you know, People who've heard about RNA and know what it is, I think there's a misconception that there's only that the only role, right, is as a messenger, right, uh, carrying genetic information from the DNA into the nucleus to the ribosomes where it gets translated into proteins, right. This is standard the central dogma, dogma. right. Yeah. <laughs> but but there's messenger RNA and then there's non-coding RNA, right. And it turns out that there's many roles for non-coding RNA in biology. I mean, could you explain some of these and say how non-coding RNA fits into healthy cellular functioning and disease? Yeah, overall, you know, it's there's these interesting stats out there that you can look at um, just before I dive into the specific uh, mechanisms. But if you look at the entire you know, human genome, about 1.5 to 2% of it becomes translated to protein at some point or other mm -hmm. versus about 80% of the genome gets transcribed to RNA, essentially. So there's this vast space of RNA biology that's still actually relatively poorly understood. And it represents really this opportunity to find that novel, interesting biology. To speak about specific mechanisms, right? One very obvious one is you have the mRNA, right, which has this coding region in it, essentially, mm -hmm. which is the part that codes for the proteins. But off the ends of these, there's these regions called the untranslated regions, or UTRs for short, right, that, are, you know, essentially are not translated. It, the name is what it, it does, essentially. <laughs> and those pieces are oftentimes responsible for regulating various aspects of, you know, how quickly the RNA is degraded, how much protein is expressed off of a given transcript, or even things like 
uh, determining where the RNA gets localized within the cell. Right? And so overall, you know, there's a number of these elements, these non-coding elements, even attached to existing, you know, mRNAs that are responsible for regulating a lot of that function. Another example, right, is ribosomal RNA, right? You know, the ribosome itself um, for translating from RNA to proteins is itself primarily composed of RNA. You know, then you even have, you know, as you were referring to all this non-coding RNA that isn't even, you know, part of mRNA, which, you know, is this even larger, vaster world of, you know, RNAs whose functions sort of are still quite poorly understood in many ways, but have a number of roles, you know, that have been implicated in various cancers, for example. So, you know, other than trying to ask you for, you know, what diseases might fit into this, right, from a non-coding RNA and where you could intervene is, why have these been, you know, and I think these are called undruggable diseases up to now, like, why has it been so hard historically to predict RNA structures and fine molecules that bind to it? Right. Yeah. So you mentioned this concept of undruggable, you know, diseases. And in a lot of ways, people, ref you know, it, this oftentimes refers to people trying to drug the proteins implicated in a disease and being unable to do so. Uh, you know, a classic example that people give of this is, you know, uh, the semic protein. Um, which is involved in, you know, oh, it's essentially overexpressed in 75% of human cancers. And we've been trying to drug this protein for a good 30, 40 years at this point, and essentially have encountered a great amount of difficulty in doing so. And that's essentially because the protein itself is mostly disordered, doesn't adopt a single structure, um, or and the binding interface, when it does bind, to uh, you know, other proteins and DNA, it's in fact a transcription factor is very large and so hard to interrupt with a small molecule drug. And so the dream of RNA is you're instead you know going one step earlier in this whole process um, and instead targeting the RNA, the MYC transcripts that code for this protein and you know decreasing the amount there instead, which is really the objective that you're going after, decreasing the amount of you know the CMYC protein in this case. Um, and so that sort of maybe at a very high level is the dream of, you know, RNA targeting, you know, drug discovery, or at least one of the mechanisms by which this happens. There's actually a few different ones. The, you know, this, this dream, you know, a number of companies, you know, realize this and have been going after this, this area for, you know, half a dozen years at this point, at the very least. But they've encountered a significant amount of difficulties in particular, they found it's hard to get a molecule that is selective to a specific RNA and doesn't bind many other RNAs, which, you know, has obvious toxicity effects, mm -hmm. but as well, you know, really getting molecules that are functional, that can bind those RNAs and actually, you know, have desired effect. And what's emerged is that to get over these problems, you know, structure really emerges as a very key piece of the entire puzzle. Because if you've got a very unique 3D structure, first of all, that lets you very selectively target that structure and, and predict that. But then on top of that, right, if something is well structured like that, generally, you know, nature doesn't waste effort. Something, if it's built something that intricate, that likely is functional as well and is doing something interesting.
Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. Now that we've sort of covered all the science, and I know it's not all the science and some of the history background, you know, of course, let's come back to the technology at Atomic, right? Now, right. you've given it a new acronym. You're calling it yeah. PARSE, which is Platform for AI Driven RNA Structural Exploration. So, yeah. first, can you explain this PARSE? include the Aries and in what ways does Pars go beyond Aries? Pars does include Aries, right? But in many ways, uh, the the updated name is actually a reflection of the progress that we've made on this core platform. Since the seed round that we raised, we've actually been laser focused on improving this core structure engine. And that includes both sort of improvements on the AI side, things of new algorithmic advances that even have happened in the last couple of years, right? Even in the in-between times since the science paper came out, as well as advances on the data side of things, right? We've actually have in-house wet lab capabilities that have been generating data specifically tuned for the AI algorithm. And so part of the key of Parse is that it's no longer just a computational sort of algorithm. It's a really an integrated wet lab computational technique with the two aspects really working in a tight iterative loop uh, to really accomplish dramatically improved performance and speeds in terms of the predictions. So what kind of data are you getting from the lab, I guess the two pieces together and how does it improve? I'm assuming it's feeding back and it's improving the prediction algorithm. Yeah. The data in the lab are these genomics-based assays primarily, which are designed for scale, maximizing information content, etc. And how we leverage those is that we're using them to, you know, supply and train the AI algorithms. And then once you've trained the AI algorithms, you can actually then you know, further guide further rounds of experimentation in the other half of the loop and say, hey, we really should collect additional data on these kinds of RNAs, right? To really, you know, maximally inform the AI and see where it's not confident, essentially, in this loop. On top of that, you can also use the experiments to validate some of the most key predictions, right? So if you're very confident you've got a structure somewhere, you can then go and validate 
that structure using more classical experimental methods. But overall, there's really this sort of key, you know, integration of these two aspects of this loop, right, of the experiments to train the AI, the AI then can guide for their experiments as well as be validated by those experiments. So here's the billion-dollar question, no pun intended, after raising that much money. But Aries was cool because it's um, you know so good at saying whether a predicted RNA structure was accurate. But now, how do you transform that into a drug discovery machine? I mean, how does Parse determine which parts of an RNA molecule are what, say, biologists call ligandable or targetable with a small molecule drug? I mean, can you walk us through maybe an example or what you're thinking? The key overall is that while there are structured pieces of RNA, a large fraction of that RNA is also relatively unstructured and non-functional or non-ligandable either. And so really, I describe it as you're not only predicting those 3D structures, but you're also finding which parts of the transcriptome, right, space of all human RNA, is structured and ligandable in the first place. And, you know, this is really, you know, you put it as a billion dollar question. I actually think that's very, you know, accurate in many ways, because there's, you know, this dream of targeting RNA. But if you talk to, you know, executives in the pharmaceutical industry, the difficulty is, say you want to target the MYC transcript, you know, that cancer target I was just talking about before. You don't even know where to start. You don't know which part of the transcript to try and hit. And if you can hit it, if you can design a molecule that will be selective enough to hit it, or, you know, really accomplish the desired functions. And so, Really, you need a technique to find these structured regions across the transcriptome, find these unique ligandable regions. And if you look at classical experimental technique, wet lab techniques such as X-ray crystallography or cryo-electron microscopy, to name a couple, those you know are very good at validating a single transcript or a single piece of RNA if you're really pretty confident it's structured. That'll still take months or years if it's doable at all, but they're not really a tool for discovery. You can't use it to scan through entire transcripts to find those structured pieces. And so that's really where the AI plays a key role, as you're using the AI to scan through it and find those structured pieces in the first place. Um, and then from there, you can validate it through experimental techniques if you really want to. So now that brings the question of, okay, What's the business model for a startup like Atomic? I mean, your main asset is you have this proprietary machine learning model. You, you know, will you provide drug target leads to other companies as a service? You will you focus on discovering and developing your own drugs? Um, you know, and if and if it's the latter, is there a particular um, disease area you're targeting. I mean, I was reading the press coverage and I seen mentions of cancer and neurodegenerative, but I don't want to make any assumptions without you you telling me what direction it's going in. Of course. Really, how we're looking at this is through a partnering sort of focused model, uh, right? You know, we're, we're revealing many, many structures across the transcriptome at this point, many more than you could ever possibly I think of pursuing internally 
right? You know, if you have a hundred structures, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> and each one of those could potentially become its own drug program. It's a little mind boggling at some points. And so by finding the right pharmaceutical partners to work with, you know, we can really partner with them and build out these programs and partnership, really. And, you know, it's not like a service kind of model. It's really these co-discovery type of, you know, drug discovery partnerships that we're looking at on that front. That being said, we also really want to focus on, you know, validating these structures internally as well and showing that you can use these structures to lead to, you know, promising drug discovery programs. So we're also having our own internal efforts that we're pushing forward to really validate, you know, the, the value of the structures we're discovering. And so overall, it's really this joint, you know, exper um, this joint internal plus partnering kind of model that we're pursuing. And in terms of the specific areas that we're looking at, we're not disclosing at this time our specific targets, but there's a couple areas where RNA, you know, targeting small molecules have shown a lot of promise. In particular, that's oncology, right? Neurodegeneration, neuromuscular diseases, rare diseases, and infectious diseases, actually, where there instead you're actually targeting viral genomes, you know, RNA, you know, essentially RNA genomes. So, I mean, I, yeah, I know we, we have a broad base of listeners, and I just want to sort of uh, maybe hit on a point to make sure there's no confusion. So I want to talk about how Atomic is different from, say, other biotech companies focused on RNA. I mean, I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with, you know, the kind of RNA targeting drug, namely antisense or RNA interference drugs uh, developed by companies like Alnylam or Ionis. Um, I mean, they make drugs where the business end usually consists of nucleotide sequences that are sort of complementary to the sequence known of some known RNA molecule. I mean, if you know the sequence of your target RNA molecule, you know in advance that your drug molecule will bind to it the same way that, say, uh, two helices of DNA bind to each other, and then uh, you can sort of interrupt its function. Um, but you're talking about a totally different kind of binding that has nothing to do with the RNA's nucleotide sequence, right? I mean, can you say a little bit about more about the difference? Why can't you use antisense or RNA interference techniques to target the kind of RNAs that you want to target at uh, atomic? Or I don't know, maybe put differently, why isn't it enough to know the RNA strands nucleotide sequence to know how to bind to it? A lot of these ASO, you know, siRNA, RNAi kind of technologies are, you know, we refer to them as RNA-based medicines, right? The therapeutic is an RNA itself, mm -hmm. which is, you know, somewhat overlapping, but a distinct concept from, you know, RNA-targeting medicines where you're, you know, really designing something to target those. In our case, we're looking at small molecule RNA targeting specifically. And designing small molecules to go after, you know, RNA. And, you know, these RNA-based medicines, such as ASOs from IONOS, they've done amazing things. But a major challenge with them is essentially delivery. Um, getting those to the right place in your body is 
quite difficult, actually. It, you know, you can target the liver. Right? Everything ends up in your liver. You can target your, um, <laughs> your, uh, you know, the uh, the eye because that's a relatively closed system. But for another, you know, for targets outside of that, it actually becomes a major challenge. Um, you know, to give a quick example here. Uh, spinal muscular atrophy, right, or SMA, right, had, you know, an approved ASO from Ionis, uh, Spinrasa, in that case. Um, but the delivery vector was essentially, you know, you know, you essentially needed, uh, you know, uh, this surgery every month to deliver the, the ASO payload, essentially. Um, and then now, instead, they've approved a small molecule to also, you know, target, you know, very similarly SMA. And in that case, right, and now it's just a pill in a bottle that you just take orally. And uh, it's just the delivery system is just much simpler in some ways because we understand how to deliver small molecules in a way that these RNA-based therapies are still, you know, it's very much an open research question. The difficulty, though, as you alluded to, is, you know, for these ASOs, you know, you find the complementary sequence, you can target it that way versus to get a small molecule targeting a given piece of RNA, you know, there's no such thing as a complementary sequence anymore, right? It's, there's just a large, much larger space of chemistry that you need to explore. And so for, to target it productively, you really need to find these unique binding sites, right? These binding pockets really is mm -hmm. how we refer to them. And that involves really, you need to model the structures really at the end of the day. Interesting how we always seem to come back to structure being you know, <laughs> something that gives us a lot of insight about how to attack. It's how thing. I view the world at, at the very least, you know, maybe a slightly biased perspective. Well, no, but I mean, I, you know, you know, you look at, you know, alpha fold and you think about, I mean, there's, you know, all these areas where we're understanding how the thing is shaped and it really gives us insight about, okay, how am I going to attack this beast sort of idea, right? Um, but so what's next for Atomic? I mean, do you already have a pipeline of drug candidates? You know, I don't know. What sort of milestones are you thinking about for the company? Um, and I guess if I said, hey, if we were talking a year from now, what do you hope would be different? We are really at this point, you know, at a fairly early stage in the drug discovery process. We're just in right now sort of, you know, developing our emerging sort of pipeline of programs. And, you know, we've really taken this data driven approach of scanning into across the entire, you know, disease relevant transcriptome to find which RNA targets are ligandible. Uh, actually, a very important point is that, you know, if you there is a transcript that is of interest and we don't find any structures in there. That's also a very important piece of information because mm -hmm. that tells you you should not waste your effort trying to go after that one <laughs> in particular. It could save you a lot of pain and suffering down the line. Um, so in terms of milestones, really what we want to do uh, over the next you know coming years is start pushing forward these internal programs and really demonstrate the validity of these structures that we're finding and connecting those to you know the downstream sort of functional impact that we're very much after on the platform side of things we're also looking to continue and expand our capabilities there's many related sort of problems beyond just predicting a single structure 
that all have to do with machine learning on atoms and RNA generally. And so expanding those capabilities is also a very key direction. You alluded to one earlier of, you know, it's not just about predicting a structure, but finding where something is structured across a transcript, which is, you know, a related but somewhat different problem. Another one is that RNA is a very flexible molecule. How do you model, you know, if it's adopting multiple shapes? And that's really linked to a lot of this exciting new sort of generative modeling kind of technology that's been emerging on the AI side of things over the last couple of years. So there's a sort of whole wealth of sort of problems to attack on machine learning on atoms in this RNA space that we're really excited about. And that's perhaps, you know, linked to the name Atomic AI at the end of the day. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting to catch up, um, you know, a year from now and find out where you guys are and what you're doing. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it wasn't super exciting um, and going to be very impactful to, you know, how do we treat certain diseases and, you know, help patients, you know, get better. So, you know, I can only wish you incredible luck and it's been great having you on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a, a pleasure to be here. Excellent. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode, as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorickian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorickian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorickian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorickian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.